Well, tomorrow will be 505 years to the day since Martin Luther, the German monk, unwittingly kicked off what would become the Protestant Reformation of the church. Now, in your bulletins today, in our pastor's page, you can read about how the Reformation was according to uh, my former seminary dean and who is a, a Baptist scholar and a historian of the church, Timothy George, he says this, a renewal movement, the, the Reformation rather, is a renewal movement within God's one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Now in other words, what he means by that is Protestantism was a back-to-basics approach to Christian belief and living. Now, there are three basic beliefs in the, the course of the Reformation that were addressed, that came up over and over and over again. And those are simple tenets of our faith about Scripture, about faith, and about grace. Specifically, how we as Christians must trust Scripture over our human tradition. And specifically, how faith is more important in matters of salvation than works. And specifically, how we trust in God's grace over our human merit. Now together, with Christ and God's glory, we've discussed this last week, these became known as the five sole or five solas of the Protestant Reformation. The five alone statements. Now last week, our focus was the foundation of our Christian belief. The Scriptures. This is God's Word to humanity. The revelation of Himself. His character and purposes for us and our salvation. So Scripture, we talked about, is the norming norm of theology. It is the standard, the rule by which we account for all spiritual truth. If we're told something out in the world, or we experience something, we hold it up against Scripture to see its trustworthiness. That is the rule of our faith. Now remember, we also talked about this. The Bible... Uh, and its purpose is to show us God and who we are in Him. That is the main purpose of the Bible. To reveal God to us and consequently to show us how we ought to respond to this God who reveals Himself in Scripture. The Bible is not a magic eight ball. It is not a legal handbook. It's not a science or medical textbook. It is not a, a historiography. It's not a political theory. It's not anything like that. It is the place that we turn when we want to hear God speak to us. That's its primary purpose. It teaches us how we, how we must live wisely as Christians. Now, it does give us an understanding for how we respond to different things in this world. But it is not for us to just you know, flip to a passage and read something and that governs how we you know, treat somebody that day. The Bible teaches us not only how we, how we must live wisely as Christians, but even more importantly, it teaches us how we may be saved. And that is what the Bible's purpose is. And it's accessible to all. The Bible is a mysterious book. It's a strange book. We spend our whole life studying it and sometimes we feel like we get no closer 
to understanding certain things, or we begin to understand some things and then have to reevaluate others. But in terms of what we need to be saved, it is clear and accessible to all. And what God imparts to us through the Bible is our topic for today. What God gives to us so that we may be saved is faith. So, what is it that we need to know as Christians about faith? The purpose and the point of faith. Now, there are several different aspects of faith that we could talk about and we won't focus on much of today. We could talk about how faith is an act of belief. We could talk about faith as a belief that's lived out in action. So faith is not just mere intellectual assent, but living according to what you believe in. We could talk about faith as a consistent and enduring hope and all the tribulations that we go through. All of those are aspects that are true about faith. But today, we're talking about the core truth of what faith is. Namely, that we are saved by faith. Now, we believe according to the Scriptures that it is faith that justifies us before God. Faith in Christ, who is faithful to the Father on our behalf, is what justifies us. Not according to any good works we do. When we put our faith in Jesus, who did what we needed to do on our behalf, we will be saved. Now, to give some historical background, in the 16th century of the church, a vast majority of the Roman church believed that the biblical doctrine of justification following the early church father and theologian Augustine on this meant that believers are made righteous. Now, you could get into semantics with that and say, well, he's right. Or you could take it a different way and extrapolate some things that are not as helpful. And I think as time went on, that is exactly what happened. So, for instance, in the medieval area, about a thousand years ago, there was a, a, a brilliant theologian, very helpful in many ways, Thomas Aquinas, who fleshed out Augustine's original idea of justification. But in his teaching on justification, which has become kind of the de facto teaching in the medieval Roman church, is that justification not only means that we are declared righteous by God, that we are given that legal term, we are exonerated in some way of our sins and our trespasses, but it also, in that same term, denotes that there is an ongoing change and transformation in the lives of Christians that accompanies the idea of justification. So, the common consensus, I promise we'll, we'll, we'll narrow in here. The common consensus on the belief of justification is that it is not only a declaration, but it is also the process of renewal within the Christian. Now, this is where we start to get into a little bit of controversy here. Tom Schreiner, who's a contemporary Baptist scholar, points to one of Luther's precursors, theological precursors, a man named Gabriel Beale. And he showed how this worked out, this idea, Aquinas' idea of justification worked out in Luther's own day in the Roman church. Because Beale believed that righteousness is best understood in covenantal terms. And agree, that agreement between God and humanity to live in such a way. 
that believers, in other words, are only considered righteous. We're only in the right if we fully adhere. That is, if we do our best and are successful in adhering to all the conditions of the covenant so we can be in the clear with God. Now, to put that in simpler terms, that like the ancient Israelites with God's law, we must be perfect in all matters of obedience to be justified. Now, this is where things get difficult. Because that means that we would have to live out a morally flawless life for it to be said of us that we are justified. That we would have to hit a mark where God says, you're in the clear. That's going to put some pressure on us, isn't it? Now, they believe that God did give grace to allow this to happen. That God's uh, the grace of Christ and what He did kind of propels Christians in a unique way that maybe it didn't for the Israelites that came before Christ. So various medieval theologians would try to give helpful examples to their church members. They would say, God's grace is always available to the Christian, but it's, uh, it's like uh, um, uh, light that's coming in, and, and, and your heart is a window, and you've got shutters up, and you have to pull the shutters open yourself to get the benefit of that light, for that grace to come in. So God's grace is available, but you have to do something to get it to yourself. Or they, they might say this, God's grace is like the wind that's always blowing over the open sea. But if you're in a ship, you've got to be the one that does the hard work of hoisting the sails so you can catch the grace and it pushes you on into good works. So that's kind of the way they talked about it. Now that is to say, really, when we get down to the bare bones of it, that justification and their consensus is not only being, again, declared righteous, but also made righteous. All of that is totally dependent in the end on our human response to God. So we can only be justified if we are actively good enough to do it. This boils down to the idea, I think, that while God is the one that makes grace freely available, that God is the one that ultimately saves and makes it attainable for any human being in Jesus Christ, it's up to our free will and our sense of virtue to take hold of it. So the bad news about this for humanity is that we must be the one in the end to seal the deal and play the closing role in our justification. It is up to us to push ourselves across the salvation finish line. Now, I think to many a proud person, they say, challenge accepted. But to anybody that is realistic about themselves and about what the Scriptures require to be godlike, we're in deep trouble. And so Luther, I think, and others, praise the Lord, saw that Scripture reveals something different than was the common theological consensus of their day. Now, it's important to remember when they develop some of these ideas, it's not that for 1500 years, this was, this was the truth, and then they just tweaked it and made something new. That's not what we believe the reformers have done. 
we believe what they did is revisit old doctrines long forgotten. They get back to the more prime beliefs of the faith. That they strip away all the, the centuries of um, uh, accumulated traditions and theologies that get further and further away from the truth. So what the New Testament shows is what the, these reformers taught is that God alone, God alone, not us, works to bring about faith in a person. And it is a faith that justifies them, meaning that it declares them right before God. God does that in us. It happens in us. And we are declared right before God. That's it. This is a gift from God alone, Paul would tell us. And not of ourselves or our good works. Now, Alistair McGrath, who's the pastor and historian and and scholar, shows how our Protestant understanding of justification, which I just laid out right there, is different from at least medieval Roman thinking. A lot of people would say contemporary Roman thinking as well. And three ways, three major ways. First, justification, he would tell us, what we believe is forensic rather than transformative. Now, I know those are bulky theological words. Stay with me here. What this means is that we are justified by faith in Jesus, namely His person and His work on our behalf. When we are justified, what that means is that we are publicly declared, which is the meaning of the old term forensic. We kind of have to get back to, when I hear forensic, I think CSI Miami and that guy ripping off his glasses and making a pun. And yeah, that's what the who I think is singing the, the theme song. That is not what the forensic we're talking about. Forensic in the, in the traditional sense of the word that relates long, from long ago is a public declaration in a courtroom setting. So that is the legal thing that has been promised. In when we are justified by God Himself, we are declared in the courtroom of the universe to be absolved of our sins. But that does not necessarily mean in that moment when we are declared righteous that we are righteous in the way that we ought to be. That we aren't morally infallible all of a sudden. That's the beauty of the Gospel. Is that when we're as dirty and as guilty as can be, God says, you're in the clear because of Jesus. That's the good news. That has nothing to do with how moral or religious you are. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. So, the grace of the cross of Jesus is so powerful, so overwhelming, that it reckons us righteous before we can even begin to obey. <laughs> God's grace through the cross is so sweeping that even before we know it, we're declared right before God. That's how powerful God and His action is. See how it puts all of the onus and the glory on what He's done and has nothing to do with our little meager philanthropies that we think are so great. It has everything to do with an infinitely holy God being also infinitely loving and gracious. So that's what our understanding of justification is. It's forensic. It is a public declaration before it does any transforming work. Now, secondly, 
A lot of, a lot of Reformed Christians like to stop right there. Because that means that, well, I've been declared righteous, so now I can be a jerk to everyone I know. Paul deals with that. So can we sin so that grace may abound? Meganoita. God forbid. Here's the second point that McGrath gets to. And this is different from Roman theology. Justification and sanctification are both biblical concepts and the process of salvation that are distinguished from one another. Us being justified as declared righteous and us being sanctified, meaning being stripped away of sin and becoming more Christ-like, those are two different processes. But if you have justification, sanctification will follow. They're two different processes, but they're inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. So, again, justification means we're declared righteous. That is, before we've done anything good or could do anything good, the Father, based on the work of Jesus for us, says, I condemn them no longer. But once we're justified, we begin the process of being sanctified. That is why Jesus sends the Spirit to us to empower us to begin being transformed. To be renewed. To be, to become more Christ-like. We start to live a life of faith that's not only an inward belief, but is an outward faith put into action by obedience to the Word of God. In other words, we do start to do good works. See, this is where we get things wrong as Protestants. Oh, it, oh, only faith matters. Good works matter. The New Testament makes that clear. You're just not saved because you do good works. But if you say you're saved and you do no good works, the Apostle James would like to have a word. And it's a scathing one, too, at that. True religion is going and being obedient. Visiting the the widow and the fatherless, uh, being good to the poor and the or that is true religion. But we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ has done for us. But because we're saved by what Christ has done for us, we begin to look like Christ and what we do for others. So we do start to do good works. We begin to resist sin. And we grow in holiness to Christ's law of love. So, that's point number two. Justification, we're declared righteous. Sanctification, we start to work out, live out that declaration that's been made in us. And third, and finally, this happens because of this point. And McGrath lays this out. Justification means we receive what Luther and other Protestants would call what other reformers would call an alien righteousness. That's a righteousness that is not inherent or natural to us. In other words, because we are, we're declared righteous, and that's true because Jesus has given us His righteousness for us to wear as if it's our own but it is not a righteousness that we make or do 
It is something alien. It's foreign. It's outside of us. It's Christ's own right status with the Father now affixed to us. How? And here's where we get back full circle. How do we get this? By faith. Sola fide. Now, this has been a dense theology and history lesson flying at us this morning, but we said that we're Protestants. So let's get back to the basics, which is what our reformer forebears were all about. What does the Bible say about all this? It's great if we can come up with theological systems, but if they don't square with the Bible, throw them out because they're no good. Because we're also sola scriptura Christians, we turn to the Bible first to understand the theological contours of our faith. We don't just accept ideas because they're traditional to us, because they're Protestant or Baptist or Evangelical or whatever. So again, what does the Bible tell us? All this has sounded good this morning, but again, it's no good if we don't get it from the Bible. Now, to start with, let's consider our Scripture passage that we read this morning. Romans 1, 16-17. Now, this very brief excerpt from Paul's letter that was sent to this Roman church that was a church in turmoil and division over social status, over ethnic identities and culture backgrounds, all that stuff. In the middle of this, or the beginning of this letter, Martin Luther, as again, a struggling Augustinian monk, his brain was set on fire when he read these words so many hundreds of years ago and really started mulling it over. See, he had come to believe, as was common to his day in the post-medieval world, that true righteousness must be accomplished by rigorous religious living. That's the only way you could be justified before God, is if you tried hard enough, if you did all the right uh, rites and rituals, that you you did everything perfectly. It, it, It was so overwhelming to him that the first time he ever celebrated communion, and he held up the cup, his hands were shaking, so afraid that God could strike him dead at any point. It wasn't a gift to him, it felt like a curse. It's why Luther sought to become more and more pious. He found himself despairing just at how unjust, how unrighteous, and how unpious he naturally was. The harder he tried, the more he realized he was ill-equipped to get there. And later in life, he recollected how at this point, this made him actually start to hate God because he felt like there was nothing he could do as a person to live out this high calling. See, Luther was a man that took the Scriptures seriously. And his attempts to self-justify by good works, he found out it was impossible. And who could blame him for that kind of despair? After all, it just meant that he was reading the Bible Clearly, when he would read Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount say, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Jesus says this, love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you want to be a child of God? Then love and pray for your enemies. That's hard, folks. That is a hard saying of Jesus. For if you love those who love you only, what reward will you have, Jesus says? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? So here's how Jesus summarizes all of this after his teaching on all these things. He says, just so simply, 
Hey, just be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What a horrifying thing to say out of context. When you think it is about you earning your righteousness, and Jesus says, hey, you know what? Yeah, you can save yourself. Just be perfect. And always have been perfect. How could He not despair thinking that way? The standard for true righteousness is moral perfection. It's living like the Father lives for your entire life. Who could possibly do that? So how does this idea connect to faith? Well, consider Jesus talked to His apostles also in Luke 17. The apostles asked Him, they said, increase our faith, Lord. And He responds to them, well, if you have faith, even small faith, the size of a mustard seed, the Lord says, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat. Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink and later you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, when you have obeyed all 613 laws of the Old Covenant and what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you should say we are unworthy servants for we've only done our duty. Jesus says, have faith and be obedient. This is where He ties these ideas together. But even if you were to have total faith, even if you were to have full obedience, you are only doing your duty. You are not excelling. You are just clearing the bar. And we all know, if we are honest, we don't clear the bar. None of us clear the bar in terms of total faith and obedience. Who would this morning stand up and say, this week, or even today, I have been fully obedient to God and trusted in Him in every moment I should have, to the full extent. Anybody that would say stand up is a liar, or as C.S. Lewis said so lovingly, a lunatic. We cannot live up to this standard in our own power. A full of faith, full faith and full obedience. And hence, this is why Martin Luther was despairing. He realized the heavy moral weight that was tied around his feet. But in the midst of that spiritual despair, and by the providence of God, he began to see one gloomy day the truth of the matter when Luther's eyes fell across these words from Romans. For in the Gospel, in the good news of Jesus, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Meaning, from every aspect of salvation. From the very beginning, before we even know about it, when God elects, and to the final glorification off in the future. From before we were born until after we die, From faith to faith, God reveals His righteousness through the good news. 
What does He reveal? What does the Gospel reveal? The Gospel reveals God's righteousness for our salvation. And the Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk here. The righteous, or as some of the older translations say, the just shall live by faith. This is the idea that Paul lays at the heart of his letter to this divided church. They're fighting over their ideas of, of how to be a better person, how they can be the best Christian possible over and against the other side of the aisle. It's the Jewish legalist on one hand saying, we'll keep all the laws and God will love us more. Or it's the Gentile antinomians that say, oh, we just believe in Jesus and live any way we want. That's the factions that are fighting in this church. And Paul asked them a simple question. Are we justified before God because of our race? Because of our nation? Are we justified because of our customs, our traditions, our laws, our good works, our politics, our philosophies, our social status, or family wealth? And he says to all of these things over the course of his letter, a resounding no. All have sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. There is no justification for sinners to find in themselves or their works or even their beliefs. We cannot look inward to be justified. Brothers and sisters, I would like to say to us as a church today, we are not justified by our doctrines either. We need to hear that as Protestant people. Theology did not live a sinless life for you. Apologetics didn't die on the cross in your place. Denominationalism or tradition didn't rise from the grave victorious over sin and death, Satan and hell for you. Jesus did that. And Paul spells it out for us nine chapters later in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's faith in this Jesus, belief in Him, confession and reliance only on Him that saves you. He continues in verses 10 onward. One believes with the heart, resulting in what, Paul says? One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. How are we saved, church? When does God count us righteous? After a whole life of never missing a Sunday morning service or a Wednesday evening prayer meeting? After a whole life of never voting Democrat or Republican, pick your poison? After never cheating on your spouse or your taxes? After never, or after always recycling or never saying something problematic or always giving to the poor or never being racist or sexist or ageist or whatever? Is that what justifies us before God? Our good works, 
Paul says those good works can be compared to filthy rags before an infinitely holy deity. Or are we justified? That is, declared righteous because despite our sin, we trust in Jesus who took our sin on Himself on the cross in our place. We confess Jesus alone. We believe in Him alone for our salvation. And Paul recruits the prophets again here to back him up in verses 11-13. through For the Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. That's what Isaiah says about the Messiah. And since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, male or female, Democrat or Republican, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, or any of the categories that we love to divide each other in, since there's no distinction because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who calls on Yahweh's name revealed to us in Jesus, will be saved. That's the prophet Joel. Christians, Let's lay down our grievances with one another. There is no distinctions in Jesus now. For the past few years, this country and this world and evangelical Christians have tried to push the idea that there are distinctions and classes and divisions amongst us. It is not true. There may be by human standards, but through the lens of the cross, all of us, are equally guilty. All of us are sinners of various stripes. And all sins are deadly. It's like comparing who's more dead. Somebody that drank a vial of poison or somebody that was burned alive. They're both dead. What does it matter? We're all dead and lost. From the moment we were born, we were doomed to die one day. There's no amount of good works that could be done across 8 billion lifetimes that could make us perfect like God is perfect. That could put us up in His echelon. Nothing could do that. Nobody could do that. So let's not trample over one another with the pretense that, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Well, you're bad enough. We're all bad. We're all in trouble. We're all doomed to die. But, by faith alone and faithful Jesus, we will be saved, the Scriptures say. So trust in Him alone. Don't trust in what you believe or vote or do or how you live. Or your job. All that stuff that is somehow in our circles bubbling to the surface again. You can only be a Christian if you vote for uh, Herschel Walker. You can only be a Christian if you vote for uh, Raphael Warnock. That is baloney. You can only be a Christian if you have faith in Jesus who died and rose for you. Let's get back to basics again. Let's get back to faith alone in Him. Because only He 
will set all things right, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, it is by the free gift of faith alone we can approach You in the name of Jesus. So help us to remember our justification so that we may grow in sanctification and one day, because of it, be fully glorified forever in Your presence. We thank You for the work of Your Spirit in the church and in our lives together today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus alone and whom we trust alone. Amen.